Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Welcome back, Carlos. Hey, it's always good to be here. Hey, this is a good space to be in, in more ways than one. Well, that's great. I enjoy our chats, and hopefully our listeners enjoy them as well. This is a kind of a different episode for us, because in the past we've discussed what is mysticism, the different types of mysticism. We've talked about different mystics. But today we're going to talk about mystical heresy and how yes. some mystics have created some problems. And one thing I wanted to start with, which we've discussed on several episodes and talking about mystics is how mysticism can be found to be troublesome to some in the church. And as you've mentioned before, why do you need a church if you have a direct connection to God? And that's the reason some of them have seen mysticism to be an issue. But tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's important we get a good understanding how mysticism can be deemed a threat or an issue for the church and how that plays into mystical heresy. Well, yeah, and that quote that you mentioned, how you're going to keep the people in the church after they have seen God, came from uh, my mentor, Stephen Osment, may he rest in peace. And that was his main approach to mysticism, was mysticism as dissent, right? As disagreement. And it's, it's true. I mean, especially in the 16th century is when, when this dimension began to be seen in sort of full-blown. But before that, there are many instances of individuals who privileged, that's a, a term that's used very in many different ways nowadays, but they privileged or preferred their personal connection to the divine, to any of the social structures and even the rules uh, set in place by the church. For instance, in the case of, let's think of some place, and there were many like it, where the local bishop came from a noble family and had obtained his position through connections, perhaps sometimes uh, in many cases, had bought his office, purchased it. Uh, it was a sin known as simony, named after Simon in the Acts of the Apostles, who tried to do that with the apostles and ended up dying as a result. But simony was a very common abuse throughout the Middle Ages. And uh, imagine someone who has just had some kind of mystical experience. Why should they listen to that corrupt, inept, and absolutely unchristian bishop as they saw it? So that's where the problem comes in. Every personal one-on-one -on -one communication between an individual and God can seem a threat to authority figures in the church corrupt and uncorrupt alike. You don't have to be a corrupt bishop to see mystics as threats. So sometimes they actually do poke their nose out too close to the bishop's face <laughs> or to some other cleric's face and say, hey, I, I have credentials you don't have. Now, not all mystics were considered to be troublemakers, correct? I know we've discussed other mystics and there have been cases where the church has, or the church hierarchy, or whoever they're dealing with, have found them to be an issue. But there's others that you haven't mentioned uh, anything about that. So, 
is that a case that's, you know, the majority are, have an issue or only a select few? Well, you know, nobody that I know has done any kind of quantitative study of how many mystics were troublemakers in a real sense, you know, and, and ended up being persecuted and how many were not. Because we don't know how many mystics there ever have been. What we have is the record left behind by those who wrote about their mysticism or records written by others about mystics. Because actually, like St. Francis of Assisi didn't write very much, but we know a lot about him from the hagiographies that were written about him. But uh, the fact remains that of all those texts that we have that have survived, written by folks who could be called mystics because they had trans-dimensional experience beyond this world of higher divine reality. Most of the folks who wrote those texts may have encountered some suspicion along the way by church authorities, but were not persecuted as heretics, did not become out-and-out heretics who were persecuted. So I, I find, I've always found this statistic very surprising, that the vast majority of those regarded as mystics by the church who left behind a record of their experiences have been approved. Their mysticism has been approved. It may have had a rocky path on the way to approval, but eventually approved. St. Teresa is one of the best examples, someone who fell under suspicion. And the farther you go in time forward and you get to the 16th century and beyond, yes, everyone who makes these claims is very carefully watched, analyzed, probed, asked questions, and so on and so forth. So there's always that potential danger in anyone who claims intimacy with God. So as you mentioned, just the idea of them having a direct line to God was seen as a, as a problem, is you're yes. circumventing the church, you're circumventing your local priest, your bishop, the pope. And that in and of itself creates a problem. How did that come about? Well, I think that one of the main reasons that there have been relatively few, and again, emphasis on relatively few. There are many things we don't know from those that we don't know anything about, but relatively few mystical heretics is that so many of these mystics come from within the monastic environment. And the structures of monasticism act like a filter in various ways. So, of course, that's a metaphor. It acts like a filter. Yeah, but what, what does that mean? What it means is that every man or woman who is in a monastic environment is always carefully watched and regulated by superiors within the walls of that monastic environment. And let's say we get to uh, Franciscans and Dominicans who, you know, they're, they're out in the world with a ministry to people, preaching, uh, helping the poor, and so on and so forth. Yeah, they're still under control. They still have taken a vow of obedience to their superiors. So at the very same time, the monastic environment was created specifically for the purpose of devoting one's life to prayer, leaving the so-called world behind, joining a community of like-minded individuals who have 
this desire to get closer to God. And you spend a lot of time praying, but you're also very carefully watched by your superiors. So it's a filter in the sense that you have structures in place for preventing that anyone flies off the handle. (laughs) As the saying goes, I love that saying, fly off the handle. Yeah, well, many mystical heretics or potential mystical heretics have been stopped cold, dead cold, within their monastic environment by their superiors. Although this doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, lax monasteries and convents and lax superiors. Yes, things get through. But the way that it's been set up within the monastic environment, there's a a filter. I get that. And it makes sense. But also, by the same token, when you're in a monastic order, you're separated from the world. You're separated. In essence, you're separated from the church. You're secluded. You're, you're outside of everything that's going on. Would you say that could also breed, you know, when someone starts going in the wrong direction and either due to lax supervision or incorrect supervision or, or guidance, that these monastics can start heading in the wrong direction and oh, by the time ha- anyone finds out, it's it's gone way too far? It has happened. And, and, you know, and later in our chat today, we'll get to a group of people who were sort of quasi-monastic and were simultaneously in the world and outside the world. And we'll get to them. The Beguines and Begards became a problem precisely because they were in a in an in-between situation, what um, anthropologists like to call a liminal situation. A, a limen in Latin is like a, a doorway, a doorframe. They were in between two things. But yeah, there have been cases of you know heretics uh, who sprang out of fully monastic institutions because the monastery is at once both in the church and to some extent outside the church, but that outside is not completely outside. As a matter of fact, monastic institutions form part of what it ends up being called the church, right? So the church is many components, and monasticism is, is one of them. The, the history of monasticism is very complex, but in many instances, monasteries had to answer to the local bishop. There are cases of other monks and monastic orders who didn't. They answered only to the pope. But that's like the saying on Harry Truman's desk, the buck stops here. (laughs) That would also be, if the Pope had a desk, it would have that plaque with that saying on it, the buck stops here. He can stop anyone, at least in theory. And within the Catholic? Yes. If you want to stay within the Catholic fold, yes. You, You can't do an end run around the Pope. That's pretty clear. Well, we've talked about the troublesome dimension of mysticism, Now let's talk about some of these heretical mystics. Yeah, well, you know, there have been moments in the history of Christianity where you have had more of these individuals popping up than others. And one of these periods, perhaps the most intense, was 13th and 14th century, especially the the 14th century, which was a, a period of great turmoil because of various factors, not the least of which is the fact that cities were growing, 
overall wealth was increasing and the older medieval system that made monasteries so crucial to the life of the church and especially to education everything was shifting everything began to shift especially in the, the 13th and 14th century you know in the 13th century you have the founding of universities with schools of theology and that's only one of many things that started to change but in the 13th and especially the 14th century there was this change in popular attitudes towards monasticism because to be a monastic you know you had to commit your entire life to joining a community you had to take vows and then you were you were inseparable from that community but as wealth increased towns and cities grew lay people who had an interest in being monastic or at least leading a somewhat monastic lifestyle began to figure out ways of being in between being a lay person and being a monastic and for women especially there was a problem there was an obstacle to becoming a monastic which was the dowry for a woman to enter a monastery convent in most cases they had to come with a dowry pretty much the same as if they were getting married because you know dowries are part and parcel of marriage throughout the medieval period and beyond so what if you your family didn't have the resources to pay for a dowry but you a woman a girl wanted to have this kind of life gradually there began to develop associations of lay women and lay men who formed associations similar to monastic structures but without vows without dowries and sometimes without even a building or a set of buildings in which you shut yourself in so in northern europe especially in the low countries in germany but this happened in other places too these associations began to grow and two groups in particular one male and one female came to be known by a single name the women begins and the men were known as begards and there's a lot of disagreement among scholars as to where these names came from so let's skip over that point doesn't matter how, how the name originated these things came into existence begins and begards and they lived in a semi-monastic environment and supported themselves that's one reason that he didn't need dowries they supported themselves by doing different kinds of, of labor like for instance the Beguines came to be known or very famous they still are because there are still Beguines for making lace they supported themselves by doing this and they were given over to lives of prayer and, and service and poverty but without taking vows so they were you know the proverbial loose cannon or potentially loose cannons and it, it was within these semi-monastic communities that you began to see greater intensity of claims about mystical experiences that went in a certain direction right and what was that certain direction that certain direction was a greater emphasis on the transformation that took place in those that had mystical experiences 
But before we go any further, I want to re-emphasize the fact that it wasn't just in the Low Countries and Germany that we had these kinds of associations. They could be found in many other places. And although they end up being persecuted as mystical heretics, many of them, in the 14th century, these associations are not wiped out. They survive, and they survive to this day. And in some places, and Spain is a, is a very good example of this, you not only had these communities, you could also have individuals who tried to live like a monk or a nun without joining a community. They were pretty much on their own. Or sometimes they, they created informal communities. In Spain, the women who were like this, never full nuns, but always very visibly to the whole community, very visibly engage in a life of prayer, they're known as beatas. And uh, these beatas, they could come in all shapes and sizes, you know, metaphorically, from very poor women to some wealthy women. You mentioned the Beguines and the Begards. Were there any other large-scale heretical mystical movements? Well, what happened in the 14th century was that church authorities caught wind, as the saying goes, they began to hear about, began to learn about a specific kind of mystical heresy, which ended up being called the free spirit heresy, and came to be associated in some regions, largely with Beguines, especially, and also with Begards. And there is so much scholarly controversy about these free spirits, so-called free spirits, lots of controversy, because they do end up being persecuted, free spirit heresy, and they do end up being identified very specifically as having a certain theology, a certain set of claims, which to this day, there is a difference of opinion about the whether they these people really existed or they really did the sorts of things that the church accused them of doing. And the claim being made by the church when it persecuted anyone as a free spirit was that free spirits claimed that when the soul reached union with God, it was perfected. The soul, therefore, the human being, became morally perfect. By definition, if you are divinized, if you are one with God, you can't sin because it's impossible for God to sin. Anything that God does is good. And there's also a logical leap past that point, which the church claimed that some people were making this leap. And that leap was, oh, I'm God. Therefore, nothing I do is sin. So they engaged in all sorts of sin and perversions, especially of a sexual nature. There comes that, that awful subject, right? That for monastics or semi-monastics is always very troublesome. So there were claims being made that these free spirit heretics, uh, you know, basically have free sex. They weren't so much free spirits as, as people who believed in free sex. And this is where the scholarly disagreement comes in. Were some free spirit heretics doing this? Well, I'll back up. There's not much disagreement over the fact that there were people who made these claims about perfectionism, right? That you're perfect, and once your will is united with God, it becomes 
impossible to sin. But there's plenty of disagreement about whether there were these completely amoral individuals, uh, whom one scholar, Norman Cohn, has, has called an, an elite of amoral supermen, <laughs> or superwomen too, completely amoral. But they were persecuted, and the persecution was intense, and eventually it kind of reduced the number of Beguines and Begards. And as a matter of fact, the Beguines and Begards were condemned at a church council, Council of Vienne, V-I-E-N-N-E, in 1312. But a decade later, uh, another pope, John the Twenty Second, in 1321, sort of reduced the condemnation, softened it. And from that point forward, what enabled the Beguines and Begards to survive as, as communities and to cleanse themselves of association with these amoral heretics. This antinomian view of union with God, this free spirit heresy possessed, uh, is that, to your knowledge, is that how antinomianism came into play in the Christian world, or did that come from before, or did it bring it to the forefront? Well, that's a very, very good question. There had been antinomian tendencies that surfaced before, and as a matter of fact, there's another heretical group that we haven't talked about much, but they've come, come up a few times, the Cathars or Albigensians, who believed that this world, the material world, was evil, created by an evil deity. And they were separated into two classes, the perfect and the learners, just like the Manichaeans that, that Augustine belonged to for a while. But they also believed in reincarnation. And they were accused of antinomianism too, the the learners or hearers, sort of the lower Cathar class, were accused of antinomianism. But within monasticism, no, antinomianism was not, I was going to say it was not a constant problem. It was not much of a problem if it was a problem at all, it didn't surface. So you do have these sort of eruptions of charges of antinomianism leveled against certain people who are already being labeled heretical. If I could just linger on this for just one couple more minutes, is it's a basic assumption made since very, very early Christian days that goes unquestioned by the church. And that assumption is this if you have the wrong theology, you will end up with the wrong behavior. I guess what I meant to ask is I know antinomianism goes back to the founding of the church, the very early days of the church with those other gospels that existed and sects that sprouted out, you know, with a little piece of Christianity with no formal mm -hmm. teaching and sort of went off in another direction, right. in an antinomian direction. I guess what I really meant to, to ask is, for me, it's a different type of antinomianism because it's antinomianism within side the church with the supposed yes. correct teaching. So yes. inside a church where you are taught anti-antinomianism, <laughs> and all of a sudden it sprouts up in well, in the 13th and 14th century. So I, I right. guess that's what well, I meant to ask. Is that right, something right. that sprouted out within the church, started with this group? No, it didn't start with them. But what's really unique here is that a charge was made, charge was leveled 
against these so-called free spirits who had, you know, seemingly sprang up from within the church. But what was inseparable was their teaching on the human self being divinized and the human will being divinized to a point where it could do no wrong. That was a that was an incorrect teaching. See, that was a heresy. And even worse, some church authorities who believed in the existence of these you know, antinomian uh, orgiastic free spirits, they saw the link as inseparable. Oh, look, you've got this wrong theology. Now look at this wrong behavior. That's what you can expect when you have the wrong belief. So in, in a way, the free spirits spring up in a way that no one had sprung up before. Think in answer to your question. Accusations like this had existed before, but this is a new this is a new thing, these free spirits. And as a matter of fact, you know, I think that part of the reason that they sprang up at this time is precisely the increased urbanization of Christendom. Because in order for these people to associate and carry out these orgies, basically, right? And other things that were forbidden to Christians, they need to be in close proximity to each other. It's very difficult to think of this taking place in a very rural area. But I I emphasize again that there's a lot of disagreement among scholars as to what was really going on here. In the 1960s, uh, there was a lot more work being done on the free spirit heretics because um, they seemed to be like precursors to the hippies. (laughs) Oh, wow, look. Oh, oh, so this is when it all started. These people were, were really cool, right? If it feels good, do it, because you're God. Nothing's wrong, nothing. But as often happens when a group is persecuted and persecuted successfully, I mean, you basically wipe them out, is that they leave behind very little records of what they actually did. What we have left is the accusations made against them. I remember when we did our episode on Meister Eckhart, which, by the way, is one of our most popular episodes. And I remember you mentioned that he had a relationship with the Beguines. Yes, he did. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And as a matter of fact, several experts who have studied the the Beguines and Meister Eckhart, two in particular, Bernard McGinn, who uh, has retired now, but used to teach at the University of Chicago, and John Van Engen, who taught at Notre Dame, they have pointed out that the connection, especially Bernard McGinn, the connection between Eckhart and the Beguines was very close. And McGinn has actually argued or suggested that Eckhart learned a lot from the Beguines and from their their mysticism and their spirituality. So that, you know, the more radical suggestions made by Eckhart, for which he was condemned, right? And then he cleared himself, but he died before he could actually clear his name and sent him and his texts basically underground until the 19th century. This idea of the closeness of the human self with the divine, the divine spark within the human self, the uh, breaking through and being so thoroughly united with God. He would say things like, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which he sees me, or, you know, God and I are one, so on and so forth. It is uh, part of what he learned or, or could have learned from the Beguines. So the persecution of the Beguines in the early 14th century can also be tied to the persecution that Eckhart endured. 
it's the language, right? It's the language of extreme union, these extreme statements that pegged him as a potentially dangerous heretic. But, you know, if we go back to um, Catherine of Siena, Julian of Norwich, they said things about sin that were questionable. They never went too far with their teachings on sin. But, for instance, Julian of Norwich saying, sin is behoovely. Whoa, behoovely means necessary. You know, it's in the phrase, it behooves you to, you know, do this or that. That's what you should do. That's what you have to do. It's necessary you do this. Behoovely, sin is behoovely. Oh, my God. Or also Julian of Norwich, sin is as nothing. Wow, that comes somewhat close, but not close enough because of everything else that they said that surrounds those sayings. So we still have a mystery, a real mystery, of these people who were uh, accused of being free spirit heretics. How many did the kinds of things that they were accused of doing? And we're still dealing with this as a, a mystery. But there are arguments on, you know, there's a spectrum of arguments. On one side, there are those that say there probably weren't any people, if any. There weren't many people, if any doing the kinds of things that free spirits were accused of doing. To the other extreme people who argue, well, you know, we have some evidence that shows that some, some were doing these kinds of things. You mentioned that when a movement such as this, considered heretical, is persecuted successfully, they get rid of most of or all of the writings they left behind or any yes. documentation. So is there anything left from the free spirit movement that survived? Well, curiously, there is one text which disappeared for a long time. People knew it had existed, but it, it disappeared. And it's a text called The Mirror of Simple Souls, written by a woman, Marguerite Porette, who lived between 1250 and 1310. And in 1310, was executed as a heretic, burnt at the stake. This mirror of simple souls, everyone thought had vanished. You know, it had been so successfully suppressed that it didn't exist. But in the, I think it was late 19th century, it was discovered again somewhere. And it took a while for those who came to, to know the text and to be able to read it to link it up to Marguerite Porette. And it's, it, to me, it's, it just shows how slippery definitions of heresy can be because the mirror of simple souls ended up being published in the early 20th century by a Catholic publishing house. And it received the seal of approval, the imprimatur, it let it be printed, and the nihil obstat, nothing here is objectionable. So to get a nihil obstat and an imprimatur, it's not as common anymore. A Catholic publishing house has always insisted on having these two seals of approval from some bishop or a cardinal. So it's, it's kind of funny to me. This text says some really outrageous things. Truly, like, well, they're, they're kind of, as is the case with extreme mystical language, right? It can be taken several ways. But there are extreme statements in the mirror of simple souls 
and especially one teaching that you find uh, stressed in this text is that in union with God at the highest level, the soul is annihilated. What does that mean, annihilated? Annihilation is, you know, ceases to be, ceases to exist, ceases to be its own thing. And here's a quote, for, for instance. Here's a quote from The Mirror of Simple Souls. It's an old English translation, one of the earlier ones. And I'm quoting now. This soul, that's the annihilated soul, hath given all freedom of nobility of the work of the Trinity. In the same Trinity, this soul planteth so deeply her will that she may not sin unless she unplant it. For she hath nothing wherewith to sin, for without will no creature can sin. Uh, that's a text that needs a lot of unpacking, right? But basically what she's saying here is that the annihilated soul is so deeply planted in the Trinity that she cannot sin unless her relationship with the Trinity is broken. Because the soul has nothing wherewith to sin nothing with which to sin because it's fully divine. Does this mean that Marguerite de Poret is saying that the annihilated soul then can go and participate in orgies? No, she's not saying that at all. But what she's saying is that you achieve a state of sinlessness in this state. And that is problematic within Christian theology. Am I uh, correct in assuming that She's implying this state can be reached while still being in the world, still being alive in the body? Oh, yes. Very much so. Yeah. Because I can understand a teaching of that nature after you've shed the imperfect body and the flesh, and you're now in communion and with God in heaven, you can reach that type of perfection. But her teachings imply that it could be done while still in the flesh. Yes. That was the big problem with Marguerite de Poret. And I'll, I'll read another passage. And this one's from a different English translation, newer. So it reads differently. Virtues, I take my leave of you forevermore. And so my heart will have more joy and be more free. Your service is a lifelong yoke as well I see. Virtues, I take my leave of you forevermore. To paraphrase or expand on that, what she's saying is, is, you know, focus on virtues and vices was key to the very central understanding of human nature in Christian theology. There are seven virtues, <laughs> seven vices, just like there are ten commandments. And Christians were urged to, you know, keep improving themselves to have these virtues. She's saying, oh, no, you know, it's a burden. You're a burden. You're a lifelong yoke. And then I'll continue reading from this passage, just a few lines down from the lifelong yoke. She says, there was a time I was your serf. Serf as in, you know, a serf in the feudal system, quasi-slave. But now I break away. All of my heart was set on you. The truth is clear to me. There was a time when all my life seemed nothing but misery, suffering so many cruel pains, so many torments. What's she talking about? She's talking about how hard it is to try to be virtuous. It's a very hard thing. 
It causes cruel pains. Well, she says, she continues, it is marvel I escaped alive, for in such servitude I lay, but so it is. I have no cares. Your ransom now I pay, and the great Lord above, I thank, that I might see this day. Now I have left your bondage. I have paid you my last fee. I never knew till free of you that there could be such liberty. Your bondage I have left, and now I am at peace, and peaceful I shall be. This is the soul talking, because the, the mirror of simple souls, the soul is one character, reason is another character, the Holy Spirit is another character, and they have a conversation. But what she's saying here is it's really, really extreme. You're free from having the strain to be virtuous. And you're free of the pain caused by your constant sinning. I think it's safe to say she wasn't the last one to come up with this. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, late, later in the church, uh, I think into later centuries and into today, we have found some other heretical mystics as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, they keep cropping up. And actually, with the Protestant Reformation, you had another one of these uh, moments in history where all of a sudden there was kind of an eruption of, let's call it, mystical anarchy. Because the division of Christendom into different churches left a lot of space for individuals to make all sorts of extreme claims. Good example, the very early on, very early on, in the 16th century, as, as soon as Luther was declared a heretic and his followers went their own way, there were individuals within that camp who troubled Luther immensely because they were making very extreme claims about their closeness to God and, and what, what kind of state of being they had achieved. And at, at one end of this radical spectrum, you have individuals such as Thomas Muntzer, who had spent time at Wittenberg, but became a thorn in Luther's side. Thomas Munzer said at one point, true pastors must have visions. <laughs> and he didn't like Luther at all, and he Luther didn't like him either, because Munzer became a very political, apocalyptic preacher, who ended up joining the, the Peasants' Revolt in 1524-25, and actually dies on the battlefield fighting with the peasants against the landlords because as he saw it the elect were the poor and the damned were anyone who owned property and where did he get this he got it straight from god so there's one example and then the radicals that took over the city of münster in northern germany not to be confused with thomas münster <laughs> this is always a, a difficult point to get across to anyone who hasn't heard of either Thomas Münster or the city of Münster. The uh, radicals that took over the city of Münster considered themselves uh, to be very, very close to God. So close, in fact, that one of their leaders claimed he was the reincarnation of King David, and they instituted polygamy in the city of Münster, among other things that they did. They also abolished private property which I think we've talked about them before. Yeah, I want to remind our listeners, this is, this is a fascinating story, fascinating piece of history. And 
for our listeners, if you haven't heard our episode on Protestant mysticism, I highly recommend it because you did a nice, uh, not too deep of a dive, but a deep <laughs> no. enough, deep enough dive yep. to get a to get an understanding of that story, and it is quite incredible. And I remember when you said it; that was the first time I ever I had ever heard of it, and mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised that's hasn't been turned into a, that's right a mini series uh, or a movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is there is a German movie of it, but it has not been translated. There are no subtitles available. But anyway. What I wanted to continue saying is that then there, there are individuals also, this, this is 16th century, a man named Sebastian Frank thought the church was totally unnecessary, that the true essence of Christian religion was that everybody could have a one-on-one relationship with the divine, and the church was totally unnecessary. Even the Bible was unnecessary. He actually ridiculed the Bible, calling it the paper pope, and he somehow I think it's, you know, miraculous. He survived. He moved around from place to place and always escaped uh, persecution. And then later on, there would be other figures like Emanuel Swedenborg. And actually a church uh, was established by his followers, the Swedenborgian church. And there are still a few, very few Swedenborgians still around. But then later on, every century, you have mystical heretics that pop up and claim that they have a true understanding that no one has ever had before, or they have received new revelations, and uh, they claim to work wonders, and some of them behave outrageously. And, you know, fast forward to the early 20th century. I think many of our listeners are probably familiar with Rasputin, the monastic advisor who lived with the Tsar's family in Russia at the time of the revolution, the Russian revolution. Rasputin was someone who was known as a sort of a wild holy man with special powers who behaved very unmonastically. <laughs> I don't think he formulated a, a free spirit theology, but he, he lived pretty much lived it from what we can tell. And then in the later 20th century here in the United States, we have Many examples, individuals who claimed a special closeness with God and special revelation and tried to get their followers to adhere to a, a new way of being religious and being mystical. And two of them that I think our listeners might be familiar with, one is Jim Jones, who established a, a new church and his followers uh, went with him to Guyana. And then in the end, uh, he he ordered them all to kill themselves when it seemed that the U.S. government was coming after him, even though he was in another country. And I can't remember what the number of deaths was, but it it was this horrific. And here's where we get the expression, drinking the Kool-Aid. He gave them all poisoned Kool-Aid to drink, and they died following his instructions. And then in the 1990s, early 90s, we have... David Koresh in Waco, Texas, the Branch Davidian Church. He too had a close relationship with God, he claimed. And again, another tragedy. You know, you go back to what you mentioned just a few moments ago, that every century had an explosion of heretics. And the 20th century, I think, 
was one of those big explosions because, you know, you bring up characters like Rasputin and the Reverend Jim Jones and David Koresh, and you see all of these cult leaders in the case of Jones and, and Koresh and just these lone wolf crazy guys like Rasputin. And among them, there's so many others that performed so-called signs and wonders and said they had a direct connection to God. And they used, which goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of the show, they used mysticism as a way to take control for personal gain, which goes back to why the church itself is so wary of it, because it can carry so much power. Yeah, it's got potential, right? It has it does, it, The potential is, is not always fulfilled, but much too often it seems to be fulfilled by certain individuals and their followers. And that's definitely true. There's religious mysticism, and then there is quasi-religious mysticism. When in the 20th century, with, you know, you're referring to this, this kind of predominance of such characters in the 20th century. If you go into the quasi-religious, you have Hitler and the Third Reich with their kind of made-up mythology about Aryans and the superior race, so on and so forth. And then you have communists in the Soviet Union trying to build their utopia, which has got a definite mystical character to it. With all the cruelty and all the killing, Chairman Mao in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia. Unfortunately, the 20th century brought us many individuals who claimed to have a special gift and a special vision and made life hell for those around them. And all of their megalomaniac claims had a quasi-religious dimension to them. Quasi-mystical, one could say, too. Absolutely. And before we end our show, I want to do a shameless plug for your book, and let oh, all please yes, and let all our readers <laughs> and let all our readers know that Carlos's new book titled "They Flew: A History of the Impossible" is now out. And if you look in the show notes, you'll find links where you can purchase a book from Yale University Press or from Amazon. And the last time I looked, you still had the special price on the hardcover. Yes, it's a special price. So, uh, because it's a special book. So, <laughs> please go out and get yourself a copy of it. And I know we'll be doing an episode on it very soon. With that said, what do you have for us on the next episode? How about my new book, which is about how we've we've had another uh, program on the physical phenomena of mysticism, but uh, how about dealing with the way in which these mystical phenomena are problematic for historians or anyone. You don't have to be a historian to find it problematic to have read about people who went up in the air or could be in two places at the same time. And it'll just add a greater depth to our exploration of physical phenomena of mysticism and the problems they cause right, for interpretation. Because while mystics always make extreme claims, 
right? If we're just talking about the claims they make about their closeness with God, well, that's one thing. It's kind of, you know, of course, all sorts of things can go inside people's heads, right? And their hearts. But these uh, physical phenomena, they, they require, I think, a special attention. Well, I said we'll be doing an episode on it soon, and you can't get any sooner than the next episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I am as well. And thank you for joining us today. And thank you all for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Eyre, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.